Let's pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. At my previous church, we planned a surprise for the ninth graders for their final confirmation retreat. The schedule for that day was to spend uh, the day and have, din- have dinner at Camp Itahapi. I don't know if you know where that is. It's west of, uh, of town. Um, and then we would return to Mount Olivet in the evening for a big surprise. The surprise was a dance, complete with DJ, strobe lights, refreshments. The parents were hosting it. A lot of fun, right? After dinner, before we got on the bus, I told them what the surprise was. But using my best poker face, I told them that the surprise was that we were going to have a special two-hour-long worship service consisting of long periods of silence prayer, and I kid you not, I I, I even threw in reading entire books of the Bible. (laughs) I know, it doesn't sound great, I said, but stay with me. Uh, You guys have to give this a chance. It's just going to be awesome. (laughs) Right away, you could see the, the panic on their faces. Is he serious? They were asking themselves. I hope not but they bought it completely, as far as I could tell. Uh, It doesn't mean they were sold on the idea. I mean, it appeared to kind of depress them, actually. And that's not a knock on worship or prayer or ninth graders or anything, but for few people, after having an entire day of religious instruction, would have wanted to do what I described, right? When we arrived at Mount Olivet, we ushered them into Fellowship Hall, and immediately there were lights and music, Now, I've been a part of uh, many dances over the years with various uh, youth groups, and my prediction for these events is always the same. Uh, The girls are up dancing with each other, and the guys are sitting in chairs along the perimeter trying to be cool. But I've never seen anything like what I saw that night. Every single ninth grader, boys and girls alike, were up dancing immediately, and and they stayed dancing. It was as though they were somehow so thankful, (laughs) so relieved. When we hear the story uh, from Mark this morning, we may have had the same reaction to what Jesus said to the rich ruler, the rich man, as the ninth graders did to me that evening. He can't be serious. A man comes up to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. The man says, teacher, I've kept all of these since my youth. To which Jesus responds, you lack one thing, sell everything you own, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. Then it says the man was shocked. Like my ninth graders, he must have said under his breath, is he serious about that? I hope not. Kind of wanted to follow Jesus, but not if it means that. Concluding he was serious, the man walked away very sad because he had many possessions. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were perplexed, I think it's fair to say. They were well aware of the traditional Jewish piety at that time, which held that wealth was a sign of God's favor. Plenty of people believe that today as well. But here, Jesus seemed to be saying that wealth was, was more of a curse, really. Um, obeying the commandments isn't enough? Sell everything and give it to the poor? Even when you're an admired, respectable, good person like this man obviously is? Is he serious? Then Jesus drives the point home even further by reminding his listeners how hard it is for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. And for a rich person, well, quote, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yikes. Then who can be saved? Asked the disciples, now sensing that they too would fall short in this equation. Is he serious about this? I hope not. And as as listeners today in middle-class America, rich by almost any global standard, aren't we asking the same question? Is he serious? It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for me to get into the kingdom of God. But wait a minute, we protest. I'm a pretty good person. Who can be saved then, Jesus, they asked. Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Aha! It's God and God alone who can get us through the eye of a needle. None of us can make it on our own. Point number one. It is only by the grace of God that the rich man, you, me, and everyone, or anyone, can make it into God's kingdom. So all that other stuff, you know, selling everything and giving, that was just a setup, right, Jesus? Uh, Jesus was just making a point to show how impossible it is for us to get into the kingdom on our own. He didn't expect anyone to, to do that, right? So like the confirmation students, we can all breathe a sigh of relief and say, thank goodness, Jesus wasn't, he wasn't really serious about all that other stuff. And then, and then head on to the dance. Right? Guess again. Jesus was serious about the other stuff. Point number two, Jesus really did want the rich man to give it all up and to follow him. That's what following Jesus is about. Total commitment. Particularly so, the more things you have to pull you away. The elephant in the room, of course, is this. Does Jesus ask all of us to do the same? Again, from a global perspective, we're rich. Now, many 
commentators over the years, as they've squirmed with the weight of this passage, have wondered about this and attempted to soften it or get out from underneath the weight of it. Well, uh, the reasoning goes, Jesus only asked the rich man to do that because he, you know, he needed that kind of a challenge because he was kind of, kind of messed up with his priorities. You and me, we already have our priorities straight. Right. <laughs> and we all know there's nothing that you or me need to let go of, is there? And some commentators have also pointed out that what the eye of the needle really means is an actual gate, you see, that a camel had to pass through when it entered a town. It was low, but if the camel uh, stooped low enough, in other words, if the camel had the right humble spirit and stooped low enough, it could get underneath, it could get through um, the gate, you see. Yeah, anyone ever heard that explanation? Yeah. Well, as far as far as I can tell, there's only one thing wrong with this story. <laughs> there never was such a thing as a low gate like this for a camel called a needle. It's pretty much made up so that economically blessed people don't have to squirm when they read this passage. <laughs> Put it in the category of, well, Jesus didn't really drink wine, but Welch's grape juice instead. Maybe you've heard that one. The truth is, the eye of the needle, selling everything story, it does apply to us. It teaches us what it means to follow Jesus. The question is, what will you do with that this morning? But wait, let's get this straight. If God is our only hope for salvation, what difference does it make what we do in this life? Why sell everything and give to the poor or some such sacrifice? Here's why. Points one and two are essentially the same point. Trust God and God alone for eternal life and in this life, for ultimate destiny and for how we live on Monday and Tuesday. Jesus loved the rich man, so he offered him true life right now, and he knew what that man needed, even if that man did not. It meant putting his trust in Jesus, embarking on a journey with Jesus, and letting go of the false gods which were the real object of his trust. In this case, in his case, his wealth and his own self. Uh, Sinead's absolutely right. We can do none of these things, the, the letting go and the following on the journey, uh, on our own. Uh, it's about a relationship with Jesus who gives us the strength, the power, the faith to step forward. So what do you trust? Your money? Your accomplishments, yourself, that's very American. I don't need anybody's help. I got it. Jesus loves us enough to tell us the truth, to shake us loose from the pale imitations of life that deceive us 
Instead, Jesus invites us to join him and experience the real thing. He may not ask you to give everything you have away, but he does ask you to give up the things that take you away from God. Jesus invites us to nothing less than a profound reimagining and reordering of our lives. What else would you expect if you follow someone as a disciple? And that person is the master. Learning to trust God means taking yourself out of the center and letting God be at the center. That's hard to do, right? A rich man couldn't do that. Can you? Robert Bella, a noted sociologist, has extensively studied the values and, and beliefs of Americans. One thing he observed is how individualistic and self-sufficient the faith of Americans is. Not unlike the rich young man. We, we come by it honestly. Uh, long ago, uh, Thomas Jefferson declared, and I quote, I am a sect myself. And Thomas Paine said, my mind is my church. With all due respect to Jefferson and Paine, it's hard to avoid making yourself God when yourself <laughs> is at the center. A very telling example of this is found in a woman named Sheila, who was interviewed in, in Robert Bella's research. Sheila describes her faith and gives it a very interesting name. Um, I quote uh, a couple of her sentences. I believe in God, said Sheila. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheila-ism. Just my own little voice. Sheila-ism. You ever heard anyone like that? I, I mean, I sure have. You, you know, you, you make it up on your own. What's the danger there? It's pretty hard to follow anyone but yourself with a religion like Sheilaism. We each have many gifts, but Lord and Savior are not two of them, even of our own life. To Sheila and to the rich man, Jesus says, let go of yourself. Let go of the things that you cling to and follow me. What does that mean for you? What does it mean for you? That's the question. But while trust means letting go of yourself, it also means, and I close on, on this point all too briefly, um, re-engaging yourself with love. Put yourself aside and then bring yourself back in as a full advocate and embodiment of love. And no, uh, the commandments aren't really a prescription for love necessarily as Jesus showed us. The rich man obeyed the commandments, which meant to him he hadn't done bad things. Murder, adultery, thievery, and the like. A good Christian doesn't do these things. Most people think being a good Christian means not doing certain things. But Jesus correctly notes that the man lacks one thing. Commitment, sure. Love, absolutely sure. Using your resources to help other people live. And again, Sinead drew attention to this beautifully. Love is more than merely avoiding bad things. It's positively engaging with others to help their lives flourish. 
family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, maybe even strangers. And no, this doesn't necessarily mean adding a bunch of new things to your life. It means adding a new perspective, adding value to what you're already doing right where you are. Let us give thanks that all things are possible with God, including the salvation of the likes of you and me. Let us also give thanks that in this world and life we are called by the same God to live a life marked by trust in God and love of neighbor and participation in a family that is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. Amen.